Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Consider This. Please let me know what you think and tell others about us on social media. This podcast was originally broadcast live on Northumberland 89.7 FM. You can hear this show live every Friday at noon. Thank you for downloading this program, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Robert Washburn, and welcome to Consider This Northumberland, a current affairs program dedicated to the issues facing our community. We talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So I'm asking you, the listener, to take some time out of your busy day to consider this. The provincial government is facing intense scrutiny these days. This includes the resignation of former Finance Minister Rod Phillips over a trip to the Caribbean as the number of new cases of COVID-19 skyrocketed. Plus, he was away at the start of the second provincial-wide lockdown. Then, the crisis in long-term care got worse. Workers and residents in these homes are some of the hardest hit by the virus as the second wave continues. It is raising concerns about the support of workers in these facilities and the level of protection for the elderly. Next. There is the vaccine rollout, some say is moving too slowly. It's a lot for the start of a new year. Northumberland Peterborough South MPP David Pacini took some time out of his busy schedule to talk about these pressing issues and more. Not only does he address the breaking news and the concerns of the day, but he also reflects on the past year. He looks at some of the accomplishments within Northumberland, but also some of the big challenges. He also shares some of his more personal moments, frustrations, and insights. It is a unique opportunity to hear a frank, unfettered conversation with an elected representative as he explains, defends, and acknowledges the success and challenges of a most unusual time. Here is my interview with Northumberland Peterborough South MPP David Pacini. I'm so pleased to have with me today David Pacini, MPP for Northumberland Peterborough South. Welcome to Consider This. Thanks for having me, Rob. So I want to start off by just asking you something really simple, like how were your holidays? Well, holidays were, were different this year, as I'm, I'm sure they were for many. Um, you know, it was, it was at home uh, with, with, my, uh, with my girlfriend, Faith, and our, our dogs. And, um, you know, it was very different, uh, you know, dropping, uh, dropping gifts off curbside uh, for people and, you know, trying our best to get out and, and support uh, local businesses. Um, you know, I'm, it's not lost on me that uh, that this pandemic has been different for many. Obviously, it's been different for our frontline workers, um, but different in the sense, Rob, that there are many who, who you know, have, um, who have a stable employment via the government and, and those that don't. And that's, uh, you know, something that, that stays with me every day you know, in terms of, of, of how we can support, advocate for um, small businesses and, and others. So, um, you know, New Year's, we supported Hotel Carlisle, for example. They had a phenomenal little New Year's dinner. I did some takeaway and uh, and celebrated at home, but it was different, you know. I mean, I, we, I don't have a particularly large family, but still it always is nice to see everyone. So it was different this year. And, you know, we capped it off just this weekend by celebrating 
a baby shower on Zoom. Uh, first time, honestly, I've never really been to too many baby showers at all, but it was uh, one of my best friends. I was his best man in his wedding. So seeing that done on Zoom was kind of kind of cool as well on uh, on Sunday, but, but it was nice. I mean, I was in the office quite a bit throughout the holidays, getting caught up with uh, constituent calls, emails, et cetera. Um, but uh, but such is life. So, but it was good. It was it was a nice holiday to to spend uh, with our dogs and uh, and my girlfriend. I'd like to talk a bit about the resignation of former finance minister Rod Phillips, who was making headlines last week. Uh, how did you react to Phillips' behavior when you found out? Well, you know, I I was uh, disappointed and um, and and frustrated. You know, I mean, no no doubt us uh, politicians must be held to a to a higher standard, and um, I think if we look at uh, you know that this uh, that was certainly the catalyst. We've seen federal members now, members uh, in other provinces. Um, you know, and uh, and there's no really excuse. You know, we've asked immense sacrifice of of. Canadians of unfins and we have to um, heed, heed that advice. And, you know, I, I've um, been, been, you know, I've made no qualms about it. You know, my enjoyment in working with Rod, he's been a very skilled finance minister. He's been a strong voice, um, you know, a, a real progressive in, in our team and, uh, and he'll be missed. However, there, nothing excuses uh, that, that error in judgment. And, um, and I think, you know, we take as a government, uh, the fact that we must be held to a higher standard very seriously, hence why, um, you know, I think Premier Ford and, and the minister and their conversation, while I wasn't privy to that, the ultimate net resignation, I think, proves um, how serious we as a government take that. And, you know, for so many, uh, this this is not about me, this is not about our government, it's about many who went without and who who heeded that advice and stayed home. And, uh, you know, they did the right thing and they should expect at the very least that their politicians follow that as well. So, um, you know, I think it was the right decision uh, to to resign. And um, and now we'll uh, we'll move forward. When did you find out about the trip? Um, I found out as many did via the media. So, um, you know, it's uh, that's how that's how I found out. And um, and, you know, I spoke with some colleagues and. Um, and have had a chance to connect with the minister as well. And I know he, you know, no one is more disappointed in, uh, in this than the minister himself. How did you feel about his office's use of social media to misrepresent the location of the minister? Well, I mean, I'm torn on that, Rob, because I think a lot of politicians schedule social media posts. That's a reality, I mean, of, of, the, of the job you're trying, you know, I it's an internal struggle even within all the ministries. I said to my caucus colleagues the other day, stop sending us all of this different, you know, different material in the same day. Let's try and if we can streamline uh, what what the messaging is that, that we're getting out, be it vital information on vaccine distribution, be it vital information on steps we're taking in, in long-term care. Uh, it's important that, you know, you, you, you get that message out. And if I... I live a, a very, my day, each day isn't the same. If, if I quite literally um, just followed myself around taking pictures and snapshots, you seeing you commented on what you saw on my social media, it would be the most confusing haphazard bag of, of tricks that you've ever, ever seen in your life. If you 
followed me that way. So I think, you know, I will, I will say, okay, today, the most important thing that I'm doing today is maybe a round table with healthcare providers. And in, in here is, is what, what I'd like to communicate from that round table to constituents. And, um, you know, do we communicate it right away or do we record it? Now, I, I do understand the frustration over the apparent sitting by fireside, etc. And, and I think people are right to be frustrated over that, uh, given the circumstances. But the practice of pre-recording certain things that you put out, if, if it's not done to try and sort of suggest you're somewhere where you're not, point made about that, but if it's just done to, to, you know, to really push a specific issue or message on a later date, or, you know, my, my Merry Christmas to everyone that I took advantage of filming that, I mean, I, I wrote that. And, you know, as much as I'm comfortable ad-libbing, many of my colleagues aren't, I'm much more comfortable ad-libbing than others. But to that one, or, or, you know, a, a Remembrance Day, like I really anguish over, you know, over what we're recognizing when I recognize the specific members of our Indigenous communities. I took a lot of time to write that pen to paper. And I went to a green uh, green screen in, in Toronto to record that because it's important I do it. Yeah, I did that days prior. Um, then we got the footage and then we uploaded it on Remembrance Day. But those are the sorts of things we do. And I think, look, if you're straight, a straight shooter with folks, I don't ever, um, you know, when I'm off or if I'm away, like I, I took three days over the summer to go hiking with my dad. I shoot straight with people. I'm up in Killarney. Uh, we're doing the Laclosse Trail, something my dad and I love to do since I was 12, 13 years old. Um, and I make no bones about it. And I think it's, that's where the frustration stemmed from. But overall, uh, what I'm hoping to convey to you here is that it's a practice that, that many use, be it, um, you know, public figures, politicians, uh, athletes, um, you know, news reporters, etc. I think we all we all do that. Are you then the author of all your social media posts, and are you the one that controls that account? Yeah, I, I'm. I control it. Yes. I'm. Am I the author of all of them? No. Do we have conversations? Yeah, I have staff that will come to uh, different events with me and uh, we'll quickly post something, you know, live as we're making it. For example, Golden Plow announcement the other day, the $89 million commitment we're making to modernize and, and build a new long-term care facility in this riding. Um, but, uh, that was, you know, done live as I'm, as I'm up at the, the podium, you know, so I'm supported by a great team and, uh, and we, we do that together. Do you think there is a need for some kind of regulation at, at Queen's Park or at the very least some guidelines for politicians from all parties in the use of social media? I don't know. I mean, I'm always, you know, I'm, I'm cautious of over-regulation. And I think, you know, politicians, individuals should be free to communicate how they communicate. And ultimately, the public will hold them to account at election time on whether they feel they've done a good job at it. Now, having said that, though, um, you know, certainly how one does it and is, is there a way we can put some guidelines? I mean, look, I'd be open to any discuss any discussion, but I think, you know, what, what really concerns me even far greater than that, Rob, is just a race to the bottom in the sort of political discourse. You know, I, 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 I from time to time go into different political groups that I see you're in as well in our community and it's not lost to me, you know, we have like 
former politicians with the holier than now post and then it turns out five days later members of their own government were doing the same holiday uh over overseas too and and this sort of race to the bottom with this gotcha politics i mean i really try to stay above that and and to a positive discourse about things we're doing i'm not i'm of course open to criticism and i welcome criticism and robust debate but I've got to say, Rob, it's taken a different tone. And, and what worries me is why would someone like yourself or anyone else who's accomplished in their own career ever want to pursue a job in politics if it's a constant race to the bottom in terms of how we demonize uh, those in, in our community? And I'm not to say, look, politicians bring it upon themselves when they make stupid decisions. Um, but, uh, but, you know, there are, there are many who decide, you know, to deviate from their career path to get involved in a life of public service, be it on the front lines in healthcare, be it uh, public service as a politician. And, and I think there, you know, there, it is an, an admirable calling to try and devote yourself to, you know, tackling issues to make life better for those around you. And look, I mean, it's not without its challenges. It's not without its ups and downs, but, I think, um, you know, we also have to be careful that at, at, at what end, right? At what end do we go where ultimately nobody will want to get involved and then we'll all be worse off because if we uh, don't attract good people to represent us in, um, in, in the halls of, of Parliament in Ottawa, at uh, council chambers here municipally or, or at Queen's Park, I think ultimately we all suffer. Um, if if we don't attract good people to that. So, I mean, this is a roundabout way of, of saying, to, to your point about social media, yeah, I mean, I'm open to any discussion on that, but the broader discourse of, of you know, of how um, we engage with those who serve the public and others, um, and just, just on social media, I think, you know, this sort of discourse you and I are having is not really conducive to a quick post or a quick, um, you know, tweet in 150 characters or less. And I, and I think that that's what's really at the, at the heart of this. It, it really isn't it that, that social media has become a, a kind of septic tank that we all have to go and swim in and it gets very hard not to, to get dirty in there. And um, I, I, I wonder sometimes, it, it, this is why I think it's, it's such an important debate to have as a follow-up. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And how you engage with one. I mean, I always try and engage with folks and it's a careful balance, right? I mean, yeah, I, I miss things and uh, but but I'm a firm believer, and if you look at where I am today versus others who've served in our community, um, I'm accessible on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and um, I, I really find the worst of it all is Twitter. I don't really, it, it is full of trolls and, and fake accounts and things, so it's mainly through Instagram and Facebook and the odd time through Snapchat that I engage with constituents. And, you know, I, I'm proud of the fact that I do that. Unlike many um, who serve in our community, I'm accessible through all those mediums of communication. And, um, and I'm proud and, and take that very seriously. And I try and engage everyone from time to time. And that's me, um, Rob, that's me engaging uh, with, with those individuals. And it's, um, you know, it, I, I have to also draw a line between do I, I spend all day on social media. I know, I know there are, are some who, who seem to wait with bated breasts for every post I make and will quickly go negative. And I find it the way it's interesting, the way algorithms work. If you post something and the first few comments are positive, that, that creates a landfall of a landslide of positive comments. If your first comment is negative and I've got a few, um, a few, 
uh, special constituents, if you will, that hang on sort of every word and will be negative no matter what. If I post a picture with my dog innocuous uh, out in the forest, they'll find some way of politicizing that. And I, I just find it's interesting. I try and engage, but no, I can't spend all day on that. I mean, you elected me to work on transit issues, affordable housing issues, improving our healthcare system. And some of those big issues when I'm sitting down prepping for a conversation with doctors, I can't be on Facebook. I have to focus. I have to review the material sent to me and I have to, you know, do, do my job. So it's a careful balance. And, you know, I try and stay active on social media. But I think everybody has to balance that with how much time. And, and I could, um, and I sometimes did and, and still do, well into the evenings. Um, but then I don't sleep after when you're going back and forth until uh, the wee hours of the morning. So, you know, it's a constant struggle. And, and it's one that I think you'll never, no one will ever perfect. It's just how you try and balance it all. I'd like to move on now. Give me one highlight from your work in the writing in 2020, something that you're most proud of. So one of the big things I'm most proud of is uh, is healthcare and and what we're doing on, on the healthcare file. When I got elected, um, that first year, I remember uh, touring our our local hospital on Christmas, having roundtables with doctors, uh, both um, and and other healthcare professionals, nurses, allied healthcare professionals at both. Um, hospitals, meeting the administration. One of the big issues was a historic underfunding. It's um, if you if you have a structural, and I don't want to get deep into the funding formula, but essentially, if you're, you're operating where you lean initiatives and you're operating on trying to keep people healthy and out of the emergency room, if that is in turn disincentivizing you fiscally, where you're not rewarded with getting upstream, we have a system that fundamentally just moves people around when they're sick. And I'd rather go upstream and move from chronic disease management to chronic disease prevention. And when we addressed the funding formula and gave the flexibility for our hospitals to breathe, imagine being in quicksand or water up to your nostrils where you're constantly just trying to stay afloat. Um, and we injected, you know, $5 million into Campbellford Memorial Hospital for the KPMG review that's really put them on the pathway to sustainability. Whereas when I uh, first got elected, there was some serious issues. People were concerned about a potential hospital shutting down um, in the rural area. And then secondly, at Northumberland Hills Hospital, which is a medium-sized hospital and the most, um, you know, has benefited the most from this fun funding formula review, because our small and medium-sized hospitals were disproportionately for decades underfunded under the previous government. And now where we're at today is, is a much better position where, you know, a $5 million uh, in base funding increase has resulted in uh, inpatient units being split again. Uh, the nurses, for example, that, that I had a roundtable with my office who would walk around the hospital after being so stressed. You know, this is a feeling in, in all, all of our careers. I remember leaving the office feeling, oh my gosh, I haven't done what I've wanted to accomplish today. Similarly, they would walk around the hospital saying, I haven't, you know, there's patients I haven't cared for. So for addressing that funding formula, and it, it's not a coincidence that Premier Ford and, and Minister Elliott came out to make that seminal announcement province-wide in Coburg, because it was really important to me. It's been important to members of our healthcare community, you know, um, just uh, talk to our frontline workers about it. I mean, that's been really important for me, that investment. So for me, healthcare, I mean, we're 
you know, at a broader level, we have more hospices in our community for compassionate end of life care than when I was first elected. Brand new long term care bills. That's going to take time, the long term care file. But moving from these ward rooms of four people to a room contracting COVID to now private and semi-private brand new facilities, this is huge for RPNs, for our RNs, our PSWs, and those who care for our aging loved ones. We, you know, we are making some transformative changes. Ontario health teams, community paramedicine. Rob, I could go on for days about you know the situation we're in, but we're we're on the right path here locally, and I'm very proud of the work that's being done by our local providers. And you know, they've got a government that's listening and working um, at the table with them. There's no question that there's been a lot of resources put into the local hospital, especially in this, this last year. Um, and it's not just been in the context of the pandemic, but also in terms, as you mentioned, the additional beds, the core funding. But oftentimes with these kinds of things, it, you're playing a game of catch up. So I, I want to ask you, do you really think you've moved the dial in terms of improving healthcare locally beyond the pandemic? Yeah. Oh, um, absolutely. Do I think the work is done? No, we've got a lot more work to do, but absolutely. When I was first elected, we, you know, we weren't engaging in, for example, MHART, where we're getting upstream. I had an opportunity to take a ride along for um, increased funding that the province has provided, which has enabled embedded, you know, RPNs, RN leads to go with first responders. And when I saw a woman um, that was taken off the streets and that had been mu arrested multiple times for breaking and entering into small businesses who now had the wraparound supports, the mental health supports. And rather than, than address it after you're in cuffs being arrested for break and enter is now in a home getting the supports that that individual needs, the wraparound supports that M heart ride along just proactively knocked on the door. It was near the end of the month. How you doing? It, it, it turns out that, you know, that individual was running low on food. And so, you know, what might be a break and entry, Rob, simply in need of food, if we're providing those supports and you've got a roof over your head, that's one, you know, one, one fewer, one less break and enter that, that we have to deal and we're going up upstream. Community paramedicine, conversely, we made that announcement um, earlier this past year for community paramedicine right before um, right before the, the COVID pandemic. That's uh, enabled, and I you know spoke to a paramedicine over Christmas holidays about that, who's going out now into the community, supporting the elderly, practicing what you've trained your whole life, not just in an emergency setting, but supporting someone age in place, proper administration of their drugs. If you're not getting, you know, properly taking your medic medications, it, it can result in, in far more heinous complications that, that can lead you into the ER. Conversely, many emergency room visits can be diverted because of social isolation for seniors. So again, getting upstream, providing that supports to say, hey, have you heard of the new um, seniors community grant, for example, that the province rolled out for active um, active lessons where you can socialize, do workouts, et cetera. Um, you know, obviously that's changed in a pandemic, but there's still those supports online and, and they're, you know, they've pivoted. So uh, absolutely without question, I think we're in a better position as we move for a system centered around the patient with local collaborative partners, all integrated at a community decision-making table, which is again, what we're doing through Ontario Health Team Northumberland. Uh, for example, local here, the same in Durham and in Peterborough, 
And, um, you know, is the work done? No. Will we have bumps along the road? Yes. But are we in a fundamentally better position today than when, when we were when I got elected? Without question, we are. And I'm excited to be on that journey, not led by me and bureaucrats, but led by partners at the collaborative Northumberland uh, Ontario Health Team planning table, determining a destiny for what's best for the patient in our community. And I'm very proud of that. That was the first part of my interview with Northumberland Peterborough South MPP David Pacini. When we come back, he will talk about COVID-19 fatigue, the crisis in long-term care, and some of the best ideas he has heard from Northumberland County residents over the past year. Please stay tuned to consider this on Northumberland 89.7 FM, your truly local source for news. We'll be right back. Hello and welcome back. This is Consider This Northumberland and I'm your host Robert Washburn and you're listening to Northumberland 89.7 FM. With over 200 long-term care facilities in Ontario facing outbreaks, the government is facing a crisis. More than 2,700 elderly people have died since the beginning of the pandemic. The number of outbreaks keeps growing as does the number of dead. The provincial government is promising to vaccinate all long-term care residents healthcare workers, and essential caregivers in Toronto, Peel, York, and Windsor-Essex by January 21st. Many worry it's too late or not enough. In the second part of my interview with Northumberland Peterborough South MPP David Pacini, we will talk about what is going on with long-term care within the county. He will also discuss the rollout for the vaccine and when people in Northumberland can expect to see it start. And finally, he will take a look at what's ahead in 2021. Here is the rest of my interview with David Pacini. Last week, Northumberland County had one, a one-day total of 21 new cases of the virus, according to the health unit. And that is unprecedented for our area. Are you worried the local spread of the virus in the context of this record-setting number of cases, both provincially and within the region? Um, without question, uh, an increased uh, case count uh, worries me, and, uh, and and even more so when that starts to put a strain on our ICU and critical care bed capacity across the province of Ontario, and that's certainly what we're hearing from our hospitals. Um, you know, I think this stems for a, a twofold. I mean, this global pandemic has, has rocked um, different levels of government across um, the world. And, and when you live in a, a free democracy that we live in, it's almost even more challenging. You see totalitarian, authoritarian um, style countries are, are you know, the, 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 this isn't a marked change in terms of what you see from government imposing punitive restrictions uh, because people live that in a day-to-day -day basis. But when you're in a democracy like ours, um, and specifically, you know, for a progressive conservative government that I'm a part of, it believes fundamentally in smaller government, um, you know, in individual freedoms and liberties, etc. This has been very, very difficult, and we've had to impose some very um, restrictive measures in the in this province to curb the spread, uh, and it's been very difficult. It's not been without. Uh, immense debate internally, externally, um, on radio shows that I listen to, on the news, um, you know, with our public health officials, there's been discourse with all of them and differing opinions. And certainly where we are today, um, you know, it's been very difficult. But I would say 
that uh, in terms of asymptomatic testing in our schools, you know, to ensure that, you know, we have a moral imperative to keep our kids learning. Um, the, the amount of testing we're doing in Ontario now that dwarfs the rest of the country combined. Uh, you know, in Ontario, we've, we've made difficult decisions, but it's been always uh, to protect the health and well-being of Ontarians. And I think if you stack up where we're at in Ontario relative to other jurisdictions of similar size, and not PEI, you know, the emails that I get on, on, on PEI and Island, like, let's get real folks. We're in Ontario, we compete with the Ohio's, the Michigan's, the New York's, the California's, not the PEI's. And when we, we look at where we stack relative to Chicago, who had, you know, a case count in one day, that dwarf will have him potentially, you know, in, in cumulative days in the entire province, um, you know, it's been, it's not been without its challenges, but, um, but in Ontario, I think, uh, you know, we, we continue uh, to protect the health and well-being of Ontarians. And it, it's been difficult, Rob, but I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pleased to see the, what, what folks are doing in our communities, the immense sacrifices that they're making have ensured the integrity of our system so that elective surgeries can continue so that we can keep NHH functioning and that our frontline workers can continue doing the great work that they're doing. When you're involved in these debates that you're talking about, do you think people are still listening to the government's messaging around the pandemic or has a fatigue set in? And this explains why we're seeing the rise in numbers locally. Without question, Rob, fatigue has set in. People are struggling. It's been a long time, you know, from, from the calls I get from a grandmother just saying, David, when can I hug my grandkids to my own mother that's asked me the same question. These are very, it's very difficult. And um, I struggle with this every day on a personal note, on a professional note. Um, and, and, it, and it's difficult. It's not something I thought I'd find myself in two and a half years into being um, our MPP. But there, without question, there's been fatigue. And I think it challenges us, Rob, as, as public policymakers to think beyond uh, just lockdown measures and look and towards, you know, active conversations we're having now about not only vaccine distribution, um, you know, rapid tests, which we're, we're you know, pleading with uh, the feds to, to continue to date. Only three rapid tests have been approved. If you go online, you'll see a litany of 30 or 40 or so under review. And I think it's important we review them, but we do really need to to not fall too far behind the eight ball here so that we can continue looking at ways to get back to life with rapid tests, with vaccine distribution, and, um, and, and, and that we can look beyond. I mean, lockdowns are an incredibly blunt instrument to, to curb the spread here, and, uh, and one that you know, are very challenging for so many. Well, maybe give us a bit of insight on these kinds of debates, because um, the, the government did its lockdown uh, just around Christmas time. And, and rather than waiting for, they waited until Boxing Day. And then there's our critics who argue that the government was more worried about keeping the economy going rather than looking after people. And you delayed giving business a chance uh, to keep selling rather than protecting the health of Ontarians. I mean, we see all these kinds of comments dancing around. So how do you make those decisions? You've obviously been around the table when those are being made. Yeah. How do you make those decisions and how do you balance that, those two sides where, you know, we're talking about business and small business and making sure that they survive and the economy still keeps going versus uh, the human cost uh, of watching these numbers go through the roof? 
Well, it's a, it's a constant balancing act. And I mean, it's a bit of a catch 22. And I don't think for a second that will please everybody. But I think when, when, when we, you know, impose a lockdown overnight, and then I host six sector specific roundtables with workers with business owners, and then, uh, you know, sit through 800 hours of finance committee, I would respectfully admit that that does put me in a position to make more informed decisions. And that's what we've done. And unanimously, uh, the, the message we heard loud and clear is you have to give business time to pivot to online, to curbside, whatever it might be. So concurrently, we're investing in broadband, we're investing in digital Main Street, we're working with other levels of government. So if there's something the feds in the province haven't fully captured that, you know, for example, our county stepping up for businesses off this sort of the Main Street vicinity and jurisdiction of the downtown core, to the rural areas that they're providing those supports. And what we heard, you know, without question was give us some time, which is why the premier, similarly to, you know, other measures when we were doing a more regional uh, approach with the uh, with the gray and red areas in, in the GTA predominantly, those announcements were made and then subsequently you'd uh, the next week they'd come into account usually on a Friday for a Monday or a Friday for a Sunday. So, you know, this is in keeping with that and, and giving businesses time to prepare and, and I stand by that. That was the the right decision to make. Um, the lockdowns are incredibly difficult. And I know, you know these have been very difficult decisions, but um, but you know those were formed. I, I hope I've given you some sort of rationale and and an understanding as to where that stemmed from. That stemmed from 800 hours of the finance committee, six sector specific consultations here, another roundtable that I'd had with our finance department and and so many uh, businesses. I think we had over 150 on a Zoom. So th that's where I make those decisions and, and I stand by them. How far is the government prepared to go though if the current lockdown does not flatten the curve or the cases don't drop? Well, this is, a, again, I mean, you know, this blends so many things in terms of, you know, the measures that one a government can take to respond to this, the different levels of government, the different jurisdictional powers. Um, you know, people, I've had calls in here, you know, on, on roadblocks and why don't I personally, as if I could come roll into their street and, and arrest personally people that they deem that they feel they've peered through the drapes and think, I think my neighbor across the way has gone out and I, I think they're coming back and you've got to do something. And so it's, you know, it's, it's been incredibly challenging, certainly a bit of a snitch culture, a bit of, um, you know, uh, those who believe that government should restrict everybody's movement, those that believe that government shouldn't restrict your movement at all. So it's a careful uh, balancing act uh, among all of that. But I think, you know, uh, Rob, I think this, this is this lockdown we're currently in is about as far as we can go. Um, when we look at other jurisdictions, and I, I find it ironic, people that will say, well, well, look at this jurisdiction, and they quote a national sort of sovereign country and the step they've taken nationally. And then they, they tell me that. I think that would be best directed to the federal government. And if we're going to see some sort of sweeping moves taken, that's a decision that's made federally. And I have to respect that. And certainly, the prime minister solicits the feedback from the provinces through the first minister's meeting and, and gets it uh, from, from the provinces. But where the, the, you know, there are other jurisdictions have imposed 
curfews on, on the time. They've imposed travel restrictions in regions. That's all been executed at the federal level where they have the resources, the means, and, and the ability to do that, uh, where, where we don't currently uh, provincially have that, that ability. Um, you know, so it's, it, it's a constant balancing act. It's a balancing act between talking to our, our member municipalities, upper and lower tier, talking to our federal partners. And one of the silver linings, Rob, is I think we have um, really put partisanship, um, you know, I wouldn't say we've put it aside because it still exists, but we've really worked collaboratively, uh, all levels of government through this. One of the things that you do control and, and one of the things that I think gives a lot of people hope is, is the rollout of the vaccines. Now, there's a lot of people mm -hmm. who feel that there was an unnecessary slowdown in inoculating people over the holidays. I want to know how you respond to that. And when can people in Northumberland expect to see local vaccinations start? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, first and foremost, to deal with uh, the, the slowdown over Christmas. Again, you asked, you know, how these decisions are made. And without question, um, you know, that we, without question, we, we solicit the advice from, from our, you know, members of our healthcare community and certainly as general uh, Hillier said, you know, it was a wrong decision to slow it uh, over the, the Christmas Boxing Day, Christmas Eve sort of window, but it was with the intent to provide some, you know, respite for for workers that have been working around the clock on the, on the front lines. Now, yeah, wrong decision, absolutely, but in terms of how, um, how we roll out, um, you know, vaccines to, to date, as of, I think it was yesterday, we administered over 42,419 vaccines. Um, and uh, we anticipate getting through the 90,000 doses at our 19 active hospital sites in the next several days. And we're going to continue. To, and, you know, that's as we await future shipments from the federal government. Um, so, so, you know, we, we can only ultimately administer um, what we receive. And, um, you know, we received the additional 90,000 uh, Pfizer vaccines from the federal government. Those obviously have, um, have added complexities in terms of storage of the specific temperature, um, but uh, we're you know, administering those 90,000. As I said, you know, if you look at, um, at, at what we've administered, it's two doses. So if we, if we have the second dose, that's you know, there's a raging debate even among public health uh, doctors and do we just give everyone the first dose and then hope that from the feds we'll get the second dose? Or do we be prudent and say, you know, if we have 10 doses, um, you know, that we, we administer the first dose of five to five people and then they come back, uh, you know, 10 days later for the second, um, the second dose. So uh, these are, you know, the conversations that we have, but without question, um, you know, that as we get through the different phases right now, it's long-term care, congregate settings, our frontline workers, as we get into phase two, it'll expand to include uh, frontline first responders, our paramedics, our, you know, we're, we're trying to get doses to them um, as, as soon as possible. I've spoken to a number of them over Christmas, um, police officers, firefighters, others on the front lines. I've spoken to our educators, you know, who are in the classroom. And then, um, you know, our ethical framework, which we've uh, released, which talks about, you know, which contemplates the human rights code, the charter and other things. Folks can go online and access that. It's public for the public to see. 
that then looks at uh, you know other segments of the population, healthy elderly, and then we progressively work our way down to younger, you know, healthy folks like uh, like you and and, and I, um, and um, you know, and and how we get to folks there. But I would expect here um, in Northumberland already we're seeing uh, doses administered uh, to those segments that we identified in phase one. But as for the broader uh, segments of the population in phase three, certainly uh, we're aiming for the spring um, for, for rollout. And again, we can only do it as fast as we receive those doses from the feds. And to date, um, you know, we're working closely with them to get those into the arms of Ontarians. Now, another area that has been a great concern to many, many people is long-term care. And obviously this is a big concern for the government. And I know that there's been a lot of activity uh, and a lot of announcements around this. And it, it is trying different strategies to get on a top of what appears to be a, a growing crisis. Uh, just this past week uh, in Northumberland, uh, the Hope Street Terrace staff person tested positive, raising concerns. The Golden Plow Lodge just uh, announced uh, earlier that it's just got cleared uh, uh, after an outbreak. Is this the latest in a string of cases that are related to long-term care in our riding? Now, there's a lot of calls for fundamental changes to long care system, the long care system, but what steps need to be taken to make systemic changes to improve long-term care in Northumberland? Well, I think there's a lot that needs to be done. Um, without question, I think most Ontarians understand that these challenges didn't uh, occur overnight that they've been decades in the making uh, to get to where we're at today. But, uh, but certainly, you know, politically, we will be judged as a government on our response amidst the backdrop of a global pandemic. So uh, to that, uh, you know, on that note, we've moved, made a number of, of key pieces. First of all, from a staffing perspective, committing to the four hours of care, um, which will put, put us as a leader in our federation in terms of direct hours of care for our loved ones. That was a huge move. And let's look beyond the partisanship because that was a move supported by the NDP. And I give a lot of credit to um, a very well-spoken uh, critic and Teresa Armstrong from the NDP for the work that she's done uh, on this file and working with, with our ministry. I mean, what you don't see in question period is when question period ends and they walk across the aisle and the minister meets them in the middle and then right at the clerk's table, they'll hand a letter or they'll talk about something. It's a shame you as the public, general public don't see that because that's where a lot of work gets done at Queens Park and you know, full credit uh, to the NDP after you know, a decade of darkness under the Liberals, we, we worked together with the NDP to really address this, to put to put us as a leader uh, within this federation. Now, as much as we'd like to, you know, um, that to happen, right? We understand that's going to take time. And from a staffing perspective, there's a conversation in terms of wages, in terms of scheduling, how uh, PSWs travel, in terms of attracting and retaining. And for people who say, "Oh, it's just a money thing," um, or it's just um, you know, a scheduling thing. It's a, it's a culmination of a variety of factors. Reality, um, you know, in, we, we train uh, tens of thousands of PSWs, but there is, a, there is a, a high rate of those who train who don't even enter the profession. They don't even spend a day. They do the training and for whatever reason, uh, go elsewhere. So we've looked at with our staffing strategy at laddering um, and, and pathways through education so that maybe, okay, 
I'm a PSW and I can see within year one or two, a future to becoming an RPN and then maybe an RN and maybe then I'll go to medical school. You, you never know, right? So th this, these pathways we've done, but then, okay, you've launched educational pathways. Where do you get that education? So our standalone nursing degree, we're not going to get that just by wishing and hoping. We have to make structural changes as a government. So for years, we forced colleges uh, to enter into these partnerships with universities. Now we're giving them the ability to offer the standalone degrees. Again, it's going to take time to start to see those graduates come through the system. But that was a seminal change that the government made. I'm proud of that. That was my ministry I was appointed to uh, that worked on that. And it's huge for uh, loyalists and, and others locally. Um, from a structural standpoint, uh, Rob, I think it's important, you know, we've had a rec record investment of $1.75 in new structures to shift from uh, to a private and semi-private room. So people are thinking big number. What does that mean locally? Locally, we have more beds under renovation and under construction new beds. Our region now then, you know, then, then we saw net new beds from the previous government in a decade. And, and what does that mean? That means for Golden Plow, private and semi-private rooms in a state-of-the-art brand new facility. So that benefits the resident, the importance of going to work in, in new surroundings, surroundings that are promoting, you know, even from an accessibility standpoint, the ability to move uh, patients, to move our loved ones around with ease from a staffing perspective means you'll see and, uh, and interact with more people in a given day. Um, and, and that has been a huge shift. Um, um, with Golden Plow here, we see a Pleasant Meadow in, in Norwood. We're working with Omni for a number of, of others here in our community. So uh, this has been record investments from a structural perspective. So I think there's the HR, the staffing, educational pathways, which we're, we've moved on, the laddering. Again, the minister launched a staffing strategy prior to COVID. We're already seeing recommendations implemented now. Um, and we've seen the announcement, standalone nursing, as I said, uh, the, the new beds and new facilities in our riding. It, this is huge. It's going to take time, Rob, but I think we're, we're heading in the right direction. I mean, and all I'd ask listeners, close your eyes, you know, before, again, um, just a few years ago, you weren't seeing these brand new state-of-the-art facilities. You weren't hearing about a staffing strategy. You weren't hearing about a shift to private and semi-private rooms because it wasn't happening. And now it is. David, you sit in a lot of meetings. What was the best idea you heard around the table over the past year that stood out to you and that you were able to implement? Oh, that's a tough one, but uh, there's some great ideas. One of the best ideas I heard, and, uh, and you know, it has been implemented, um, you know, to a certain extent provincially, but was locally a doctor who came to me with a, a software application uh, in terms of uh, red light, uh, green light, yellow light, um, and, uh, and and had partnered with a number of app creators and some real leaders. If uh, listeners yourself, close your eyes and think Cineplex, uh, Scotiabank, um, RBC's online mobile banking, a pizza pizza app, how many of you have ordered a pizza through that? These are some of the app creators that we had around the table. And from my perspective, it was really cool. I mean, I'm not a, uh, you know, a, a, a real techie. So to sit down and speak to them about the app that they created uh, to track um, COVID cases, I thought was incredibly inspiring to see people pivot from the private sector immediately to answer the call. Um, that was incredibly inspiring and I connected them with uh, with Premier's office with the Ministry of Health 
um, and they fed into the, the app that was developed, and, and, and the app that they've used is now being uh, used and, you know, considered among hotel chains, airline providers. So th- that was really neat. But I would say at a very macro level, to answer your question, um, also the many calls um, from, you know, manufacturers who pivoted their lines to make hand sanitizer, for example, locally, General Civilian, who did the masks. Um, if I think even, uh, Mark, and uh, uh, Rob, I don't want to lose sight of the, you know, the, grandparents who've come together to start a knitting circle to provide masks. Um, The ingenuity, be it from a tech perspective, from apps, to just using your hands to support um, in the fight against COVID-19, that to me is the story of this year. How inspiring it was from um, a collection of of women in in the Trent Hills area that made masks, um, and I had the opportunity to get on the phone with some of them, to manufacturers, to uh, app developers. Uh, this was inspiring in many ways uh, to see the resiliency and to see our community step up and answer the call. And that is, it's not just going to be done, Rob, through politicians. Um, it, the, the real, you know, heroic and, and, and the great strides are made through just people stepping up in their own communities. And, and that, to me, is the Ontario spirit, it's the Canadian spirit, and, uh, and something, a light that will always shine bright in our country um, and that will never dim. So I'm just, uh, that's been really inspiring from my perspective. What can we expect from the government in the upcoming days and months? Well, in the upcoming days and months, obviously, we'll continue with the vaccine rollout, uh, long-term care, um, continuing uh, to make uh, you know more announcements on that file as we progress through education pathways. As I mentioned, standalone nursing piece. Um, expect more on that in the coming days. Uh, you know, and with respect to um, support for small businesses moving beyond uh, this this lockdown, where we go uh, to really unlock the potential. I mean. On the precipice of COVID, we had a record number of jobs created. We were talking about a resurgency in, in manufacturing. And even amidst the pandemic, we still have more manufacturing jobs uh, right now in Ontario than we did when we first took office. And we're seeing a pivot of those manufacturers. 3M setting up shop here in Ontario. Um, so expect more, be it uh, our, our efforts to combat uh, skyrocketing electricity prices that were making this province uncompetitive. Um, to, uh, you know, measures from payroll tax, small business tax, to support our small businesses emerge even stronger, because we will, uh, from COVID-19. And, uh, and Ontario will, will emerge, uh, you know, once again as the engine of uh, the Canadian economy. David Pagini, I want to thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks very much for having me, Rob. Appreciate it. That was David Pacini, MPP for Northumberland, Peterborough South. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life and Northumberland County. So please tune in. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in. And I hope over the week you will continue to consider this.
Thank you for listening to this podcast from Consider This. If you have any comments or would like to suggest a story, please contact me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com or you can message me on Facebook at Consider This. If you enjoyed this podcast or are looking for more news and information about Northumberland County, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. That's consider-this.ca. And don't forget to share. And again, thank you for listening and stay tuned for more from Consider This.